Wonderful. It's good to see all of you, so many of you here today. Praise the Lord for that. Just wait for just a couple more people to come in. Come on in, be seated, come close. We want to keep everybody close up front so you guys can make us feel like a family. And uh, just add to the to the uh, vibe here. Let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that we can come and gather together as your people to worship you, Lord, and to stand in awe of your redemptive work and the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Truly, Lord, it's only because of your Son that we can gather here week after week and we can sit under your word and we can encourage one another and we can live in the grace of God. And so we're grateful for Christ. Thank you for his death, his burial, his resurrection, for all that he has done for us. Thank you for his perfect life, his perfect death. Lord, thank you that he has given us a, uh, a future that is certain, a hope that is unshakable, and uh, an inheritance that will never fade away. We thank you for our precious Lord. Bless our time, Lord. Guide, guide our discussion. Give uh, Joseph and I uh, wisdom and freedom just to, uh, just to encourage one another, encourage your people in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, uh, it's always a privilege and a joy to have Joseph Irvin here among us. Uh, the reason that Joseph is here is because we're going to a conference tomorrow. Joseph and I are going to a very small, sort of unknown, uh, 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 not not really popular conference, at least not with a lot of people, but uh, for he and I, it is a popular conference. It's mm-hmm. going to be a conference down in Wimberley, Texas, uh, which is hill country, so just kind of south of Austin and all that, and uh, it's going to be a conference with uh, featured speaker Lane Tipton. How many of you guys have heard of Lane Tipton? No? Just a few, one, two, three, maybe four, five, six, okay. Just a few guys, but Lane Tipton is a really important uh, uh, theologian uh, for today, Mm -hmm. and uh, I've uh, came across Lane Tipton's uh, teaching and theology and uh, and his influence. He is a he's a uh, a teacher of uh, uh, systematic theology. Correct me if I'm wrong. Systematic theology and, yeah, apolo- right. and apologetics at Westminster Philly, right? Isn't that? What I'm not is? sure about apologetics. I think he, I think it is apologetics. He surprised me, but uh, definitely systematic theology. And uh, he's going to be teaching twelve lectures on covenant theology. And I think it's you and I have talked to Lane Tipton before. Yeah, remember? Yeah, that's right. We cornered him for like at least an hour, and we blasted him with all these baptistic questions. He's a Presbyterian, so you know we kind of got to watch our step. Uh, I wouldn't go to that conference alone, so I had to take Joseph with me just to kind of back me up a little bit. You know, (laughs) be surrounded by Presbyterians. But uh, before we jump into a discussion of theology, Joseph, just kind of share with us what's been going on. Joseph is before I forget. Joseph's studying. Uh, at Puritan uh, uh, Puritan Reform Theological Seminary, with under Joe Beakey and uh, all the other professors there too. But uh, how's it going, Joseph, with uh, with Puritan? And share with uh, with us just kind of like what your vision is, why you're there, mm-hmm. and then what's mm-hmm. the what's the end game? You just want to be a scholar? <laughs> you just going to write footnotes for other scholars to read? No, so the, the, the plan is, is, uh, I, I continue to have a, a burden and a desire to work in Latin America, 
as we see where the church is going here in the United States and in the quote-unquote first world of you know Western civilization as we know it, uh, the, the, the church uh, culture itself is, is uh, being thrust headlong into an oncoming train wreck, as one, one scholar said. Uh, and uh, the future of the church in the United States and in the first world and, and Western culture as we know it, uh, it, it really looks grim. Now we know we serve a mighty God who does mighty and amazing things over and over through church history. But the fact is, is if the current cultural uh, influences and forces continue to play out uh, as they have been doing, uh, the church really is degrading. There is great downgrade. Uh, uh, Christian, you know, uh, experts are increasingly calling American culture a post-Christian culture, just like Germany, just like many places in Europe, uh, and it looks pretty grim. And I think the great spark of hope for the future church on earth really is in the global church of the third world especially in countries like China, Africa, and especially Latin America. And so we need to mobilize all our forces and combine our efforts and spend ourselves and be spent for the sake of the church in Latin America. And as I've worked in Mexico for the past 10 years, 11 years now, uh, there's, there's a lot of encouraging things that have been happening there. Uh, there is a, a lot of discouraging things that are happening there, and there is a lot that needs to be done. And so as we work with our ministry in Mexico and this network of churches that the Lord has uh, been pleased by His grace to raise up there, uh, and through the exposure and influence that our ministry has in Mexico, uh, one of the pressing needs that has arisen is to provide formal theological training, instruction, uh, for men who demonstrate potential for the ministry. Uh, we need leaders. The harvest is great, and the laborers are few, very, very few. And like I've, I've told many others, I said, I often say uh, the church in Latin America, uh, especially in our circle of churches and, and where we work, uh, the church is very strong in particular areas in which the American church, even the sound, true American church, tends to be weak. But also the American church, the sound church, the true church uh, in America tends to be strong in areas in which the Latin American church is weak. Can you give some examples? What do you mean by that? In the Latin American church, uh, one of the strengths that we see is genuine, authentic koinonia being lived out, brethren being involved in one another's lives, a culture of mutual exhortation and encouragement. Uh, be careful that none of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, but, you know, as the text says, exhorting one another and so much the day, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, there's, there's much of that. We're seeing a lot of koinonia, a lot of growth, a lot of organic just unity in the body of Christ and growth and and that and the American church that has been so overly institutionalized and organized and formalized and so forth, uh, it's, it's just languishing here stateside. 
So that's one of the strengths there. But one of the strengths of the American church, it's a weakness in the Latin American church, is just the ability to have such free and pretty much unlimited access to sound theological resources and training and recordings, you know, through internet and institutions and, and all of that. So what we need to provide for the Latin American church is that kind of theological instruction so that the upcoming leaders in the church in Mexico and really all over the Hispanic world can be properly trained to rightly handle the word of truth and to preach the whole counsel of God according to the mind of Christ in scripture. So uh, reformed theology, uh, understanding re- reformed theology uh, and its true, healthy, historical uh, expression and sensitivity and subjection and, and submission to scripture. Uh, uh, reformed theology, continuity with historic reformed orthodoxy and, and so forth in Latin America is greatly, greatly lacking. There's just uh, historical theology in general tends to be so weak there. So what we want to do with our ministry is I'm seeking to pursue more formal academic training, especially under Dr. Beakey uh, there in Grand Rapids, who is one of the foremost, if, and even I would dare to say the foremost Puritan scholar uh, of our day. Uh, I'd, I want to be trained in all this and in historic reform theology, delving deep into the primary sources in order to understand uh, uh, you know what the church has historically taught and preached and so forth uh, uh, through the primary sources and not just as filtered through and interpreted by uh, secondary sources and people and so forth uh, we want to take that to Latin America and our goal long term is to establish a seminary in conjunction uh, with the fellowship of churches that the Lord has raised up in Latin America uh, we want to see laborers trained up uh, and, and adequately equipped and then sent forth to preach the gospel and to and, and to really plant churches. That's that's uh, that's that's what's desperately needed. So uh, I don't want to become a dry academician. Uh, I, I do like that quote from Spurgeon that you shared with me yesterday: "Study yourself to death and then pray yourself alive." Uh, I feel like that's that's what I've been doing, uh, though I, I feel like I'm also greatly lacking in the area of praying myself alive. I feel like I'm doing much of studying myself to death. Uh, it's been a blessing. I've, I've been growing a lot. I have access to, I mean, the William Perkins Library. William Perkins is uh, really he's called the father of English Puritanism. Uh, he's one of the most important uh, figures, uh, historically speaking, in the Reform Movement. Uh, the library there in Grand Rapids, a Puritan seminary, is named after William Perkins, William Perkins Library. Uh, they have about 100,000 titles, and they have two rooms that are unique rooms. Uh, it's called the Puritan Resource Center. So one of those rooms is primary sources. There's a whole room filled with primary sources of Puritan literature. And then they have another room that's filled with secondary sources, uh, which are all these published scholarly works about different aspects of uh, the Puritan era, uh, you know, the, the historical background, and especially the theology of it, the theology of it all. So uh, I, I just uh, have access to resources there that I would not have access to 
really any, anywhere else in the world. So it's enabling me to grow. Uh, and the idea of it is to become equipped so that I can equip others. Yeah, amen. Well, over the years, Joseph has been somebody that I can go to, I can trust. Uh, and that doesn't get bored talking to me about covenant theology or biblical theology or systematic theology. He and I have a little bit of a ongoing conversation going on right now. I think Joseph uh, is really, really good at systematic theology, and that's really his... Don't let me misrepresent you, but I would say you're more passionate about systematic theology than, let's say, biblical theology. Is that fair or not? Yeah, and, and everybody yawns when they hear that. <laughs> no, I don't. Absolutely not. Uh, I don't. But, uh, you know, the reason why I really value Joseph's friendship is because when I'm thinking something or studying something and it's high level and it's academic and stuff like that and I feel like maybe I better double check make sure I'm on the right track here. You know, I know Joseph will always tell me exactly where... I stand. <laughs> they always tell me if I'm if I'm on point or if I'm going astray. So uh, I've always appreciated that uh, about Joseph. And you know, he and I had a conversation uh, on the phone uh, before he came here a few maybe a couple weeks ago. It was such a rich conversation. I thought, you know what, we need to bring this to the church. I'm like, when you come down, we're just going to talk in front of the church and we're going to talk about these rich things. So let's talk a little bit about covenant theology, Joseph. Uh, that's a segment of systematic theology isn't it well yeah yes and no i mean traditionally uh covenant theology has uh become so incorporated into works of systematic theology that it's it's pretty much seen as what we call a loci or a, a particular uh specific theme that pertains to systematic theology but uh really uh, uh covenant theology as it has Developed historically, I think it pertains more to the discipline of biblical theology as we understand biblical theology in the sense of redemptive historical hermeneutics. Excellent. Couldn't say it better myself. Uh, how, how many of you here have read one book on covenant theology? One book. Yeah, a couple, few of you. Yeah, several of you. Praise the Lord. Yeah, that's good. No, that's good because... That, uh, that's really good because most churches don't have anybody, or hardly anybody, I, I think, so yes, yeah. that's good. Yeah, it's really good, and one thing that Joseph and I were talking about is that one thing that's lacking right now in the church is a very simple introduction to covenant theology. Uh, J.I. Packer has a little mm-hmm. book called Introduction to Covenant Theology, but it's not, it's not really what I think is needed ultimately. I think it, you need to spell it out a little bit more, lay it out a little bit more systematically and stuff like that. So if somebody wants to study covenant theology, where do you send them? Where would I send them? Yeah, I know where I would send them. Where would you send them? I'm not, I'm not going to say yet. <laughs> You're going to answer it first. Uh, I, I think what what is lacking right now in terms of published works is a popular level introduction to uh, covenant theology. And what's greatly, greatly lacking is a popular level introduction to uh, covenant theology from a credo baptist, that is, a, a, from yeah. a perspective of believer's baptism. Yeah. Uh, there, there's just not much out there that exists. Uh, if you want a good historical overview of how some of this was fleshed out in its uh, historical context in Protestant, Reformed, Baptistic, Orthodoxy of the 17th century... 
I would recommend Pascal, Pascal Denwalt, his uh, we have that distinctiveness of, yeah. what, what's the title, the distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant like Theology, yeah, something like that, and it's it's really easy to understand, it's a summary of his master's thesis, but it's it's not very technical, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty pretty accessible, uh, that, that's a good place to start to understand the historic uh, kind of development of it. In terms of a biblical exposition, I'd, I'd, I really like Jeffrey Johnson's The Kingdom of God. Uh, there's some details in the book that I wouldn't quite agree with, uh, but overall I think it's a, a good summary. Yeah, how, how do you, Joseph, how do we answer the maybe the objection that some would have that, you know, like there are as many views on covenant theology as there are covenant theologians, because that's true. Yeah. I mean, look at what you just said right now. I mean, Jeffrey Johnson's a Reformed Baptist guy. Here you are, Mr. Reformed Baptist. <laughs> and yet, there's things you don't agree with. So, like, is there any hope to really sort of, uh, you know, benefit from a study of covenant theology? Where we yeah, well, that, I think you could almost say the same thing about the doctrine of God. There are, there are as many different views on the doctrine of God and the Trinity as there are theologians who specialize in theology proper. So, I, I mean, yeah, there are there is a, a great diversity of views that exist out there. But the fact is, is uh, when it comes to covenant theology, uh, there might be different specific ways of working out the details of it. But the fundamental construct of the thing remains basically the same. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, because here we are talking about covenant theology, but what is the basic construct of covenant theology? What is covenant theology, um, I guess, what... What would be a sort of working definition, along with why is it important? A working definition. Uh, well, God relates to his people by way of covenant. And so there is no one anywhere on planet Earth, in heaven or in hell, uh, as far as it goes, uh, that is not related to God by way of covenant. All of humanity is comprehended uh, uh, either uh, uh, federally speaking or covenantally speaking, either in Adam or in Christ, there is no neutrality, there is no middle ground, there is no uh, third federal head. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And uh, these two basic uh, covenantal constructs uh, that come theologically and conceptually uh, subsumed under the federal headship of Adam and Christ uh, really result in a hermeneutic by which we approach Scripture. When I say a hermeneutic, I mean a way, a method, a science, and an art of biblical interpretation uh, that affects the way that we understand the Bible. And so it's like J.I. Packer said in his little booklet on covenant theology, he starts out saying, covenant theology really is a hermeneutic. And that's what it is. And I would even go further than that, than that and I would say, well, the fact is, is dispensationalism is also a hermeneutic. It's not just a doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. It is a hermeneutic. Well, the, the same thing, but on the other end of the spectrum applies to covenant theology. It's a hermeneutic. And so this uh, fundamental uh, construct of being either uh, contemplated by God as being in Adam or in Christ gives way to what we consider the covenant of works and the covenant of grace uh, and this twofold way of seeing God's interaction and dealings with mankind, 
by way of the covenant of works or the covenant of grace, gives rise to the whole hermeneutical concept of law and gospel. And so one thing that is integral to historic Protestant orthodoxy and Reformed theology, I say Protestant orthodoxy and Reformed theology, because this characterizes not only the uh, the, the movement of Switzerland and so forth, from Zwingli and Calvin and all that, but also the whole Lutheran tradition, Protestant orthodoxy, uh, but it's, it's this whole construct of, of law and grace. And in the Reformed, you know, the, the, the Reformed tradition, of course, it was developed more in a covenant theology more than in the Lutheran. But this, this fundamental construct of law and gospel, it, it, it really is a, a hermeneutical concept or construct by which we approach and understand Scripture. So to put it simply, that's covenant theology. It's understanding that pretty much all of Scripture is either law or gospel. It pertains to the covenant of works or to the covenant of grace. Uh, God deals with any everybody by way of covenant, and we relate to God by way of covenant. And the matter of the fact is, is that's, that's salvation. Salvation is relating to God savingly and favorably by way of the new covenant. So we make a very careful qualification when we're talking about covenant theology, especially as Baptists. Um, uh, <clears throat> would you agree with the statement that every covenant either follows the works principle or the grace principle? Okay, so if you agree with that statement... Or a combination. Or a combination. Um, but when we come to the Mosaic Covenant... This is where we kind of part ways with some covenantalists. This is a probably, I don't know, I would say this is the most important uh, distinction. This is a big one, right? Where you see the Mosaic Covenant mainly as a covenant of grace. That would be more of a Presbyterian sort of standard reform, classic reformed uh, sort of paedo, uh, uh, you know, understanding of covenant theology. A, ba- a Baptist would typically view the, uh, not, not even maybe Baptistically, but just some Baptists, certainly Pascal Denault and others, they would view uh, the Mosaic Covenant as a works principle, uh, which that's my position. That's your position, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, good. I'm going to make sure we're on the same page. I, I would qualify that a little more, but yeah. That's... Okay, how would you qualify it? Because... <laughs> Uh, I like what I just said. I, I would say that the, the the Mosaic Covenant is 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 really based. It is based on the works principle, uh, but it, it is not a recapitulation of the covenant of works as such. I think you agree with that. I, I think the Mosaic Covenant is a republication, as it's been called by some, of something like the covenant of works. But the difference being that what was at stake for Adam was eternal life and the kingdom of God, but what is at stake for Israel is their national uh, identity, their national election, if some have said. So that's kind of more where I'm at. Yeah, so I I think I agree with that, uh, but I I would just qualify that by saying that the the, the works principle uh, upon which the Mosaic dispensation is based uh, is published in a manner subsidiary to the purposes of the covenant of grace. Oh, sure. So God's so God's redemptive purpose. Yeah, so basically what Joseph, what you're saying is that uh, even though there is a works principle in the Mosaic Covenant, it is it serves the interest of the covenant of grace. 
Yeah, and there's also a, an overlying gracious construct that that governs the the, sure. the Mosaic covenant, yeah, or else like Israel couldn't exist for two seconds, right? That's right. It's like this is there's a there's a sacrificial system and so forth. That's right. So in the in in the Mosaic covenant, this is really important because uh, we're not in the Mosaic covenant, but if you were, where's the grace of God? Right, if it is a works-based principle that's operating there, you have to earn your righteousness before God. No. So what we're saying is that even in the Mosaic Covenant, the sacrificial system, therefore the types and shadows, uh, provide the means of grace that people need in order to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so it's like Owen said, by virtue of the Mosaic Covenant as such, considering the covenant properly speaking, no one was either eternally condemned or eternally saved. Because what was at stake in the Mosaic Covenant was not eternal salvation and damnation as such, but rather life in the land of Canaan. So obedience of the terms of the covenant would result in... Uh, the fruition of the promises of prosperity, life in Canaan, deliverance from their enemies of the nations around and so forth, all as types of the greater spiritual realities that would come into higher and explicit definition in the New Covenant era. Uh, And and so they, they could also break that and forfeit that and fall under the curse of the violated covenant, which bears significant continuity with the covenant of works, of course, with the initial covenant of works as Adam. I mean, there's a lot of biblical theology coming into play there. Adam is a son of God. Israel is called the son of God in a typological sense. Uh, and just as Adam had to persevere in obedience to the terms of the covenant of works, uh, uh, the, the theocracy under the Mosaic uh, covenant was commanded to persevere in obedience to the terms and conditions of that covenant. And when they did not, they violated the covenant and they invoked upon themselves all of the curses of that covenant, resulting in exile from the promised land, even as Adam was exiled from Eden. Yeah. So it's this whole recapitulation. It's, it's, it's like the playing out again, the scene two uh, of of the whole uh, God Adam kind of relationship. So yeah. there's so much parallelism. In other words, just like it. Adam was, uh, just like he was excommunicated from the garden, as it were. Right? He was he was ejected from the garden. He had to go east of Eden. The same way Israel, by virtue of its captivity, whether Babylonian or Assyrian or whatever, right, that that was a result of apostasy. So the same covenant betrayal that Adam committed in the garden, in a sense, is sort of you know uh, repeated again mm-hmm. uh, through the corporate Adam, which is Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any questions? You guys have any questions about that before I move on to something else? Sure. Somebody brave enough to eke out a question on covenant theology? Anyone? No? Okay, you're almost there. You're thinking about it. You're right on the edge. You're the closest. Yes, sir. Uh, Chris Matthews. So, I, I figured y'all would mention in the discussion of the grace relating to the people of God in the Mosaic Covenant. The grace to be found was from the Abrahamic promises, right? Mm. Salvifically, that promise continued and that promise was there for salvation. Mm. Good question. Question. 
Yeah, I'm so glad Joseph's here. Go ahead, Joseph. <laughs> okay, so the, the, the only covenant by virtue of which anybody has ever been saved must necessarily be the covenant of grace. Or, if you would not equate the covenant of grace being ratified and fully revealed in the blood of Christ, you would have to say it's by virtue of the new covenant. But the fact is, is the grace, the merit, the righteousness, all of the saving virtue by which anyone has ever been saved is solely the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, his living and dying and arising on behalf of his people. So anybody under the Mosaic Covenant that was saved was not saved by virtue of the Mosaic Covenant and was not even saved as such, properly speaking, on the basis of the Abrahamic Covenant or any prior covenantal administration, but was saved due to the the, the uh, uh, forward-looking in hope and faith uh, to the to the grace that would be established by the blood of Christ, and so you're, you're right in the sense that by virtue of the promise, so they they exercised faith in the coming mediator by virtue of the revelation of the gospel through the promise, and the promise of Genesis 12, Genesis 15, uh, 17, 22, and so forth. Uh, though in 17 it's commingled with the covenant of circumcision, which, which bears significant continuity with the Mosaic uh, administration, of course. Uh, but all that, God's promise to Abraham really is a further development and continuation uh, of the Proto-Evangelion of Genesis 3.15. And so from Genesis 3.15 onward, there is su- sufficient evangelical substance in the promise of salvation so as to constitute the basis of exercising saving faith in God unto salvation, looking forward to the Savior that, that, that the Lord would raise up. But the actual virtue and righteousness by which Abraham and all the saints of the Old Covenant were saved was a virtue and righteousness established by Christ alone in his historic Living and dying and rising. Yeah, yeah. I think a good uh, section of scripture to speak to that exact point would be Galatians chapter three. Um, I mean, Galatians three, especially verses six all the way to verse eighteen. You know, where it makes very clear that the covenant of Abraham was given to him as a promise. That promise is equated with the gospel. Therefore, if you put your faith in the promise, in a sense you're putting your faith in the gospel, and that is how the positive righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. You see, so so it's kind of like the work of Christ, okay, thousands of years after Abraham was therefore retroactively, this is important, it was retroactively applied to the saints who had not yet seen Christ. So the easiest way I've heard it says, we look back to Christ, they looked forward to Christ. We have the same, uh, you know, we have the same, uh, you know, uh, in a sense, we have, this, we have the same standing. You know, we're both looking to the, 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 the actual work of Christ, though we're not actually there at that time when Christ did the work. Uh, there's no difference. So what's the requirement for both people? Faith. So faith is the only way that someone is justified is by faith alone. So mm-hmm. thus the Reformation. You know, I just heard a lecture that I've been studying so much stuff on Van Til. You know, Scott Oliphant said, which I thought was really good. You know, he said that, um, you know, he talked about 
Oh, what, was, what was he saying? Maybe I forgot it. Uh, oh, what did he say? It was important, too. Do you love when that happens? Does that mean I'm getting old? Uh, what was he saying? Maybe it'll come to me. Uh, no, forget it. It's gone. It's gone. It's in the ether world, the nether world. Yeah. You were talking about uh, in the Mosaic Covenant, what was not at stake is what was at stake for Adam. Hmm. Exactly. I mean, that's what I think. Uh, I was just at the text that I would go to support that. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and following, to mm-hmm. me, speaks of that very thing that, you know, what was at stake in their covenantal obedience to God was the blessings of the covenant, which are found in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. But uh, in addition to that, it is really understood in terms of the land promise. That's a big one. And their, obviously, their national identity in the land. So, who wants to speak that? Mm-hmm. I want you to do the most of the talk. It is. That's, that's, that's right. I, I agree with that. Uh, but, um, the, the land promise, the theocracy, I mean, all, all the things that were at stake in the, in the Mosaic Covenant were all really types and shadows of the greater reality of the thing. So uh, we don't want to just say, we don't want to say it's just that, but it's God accommodating his revelation and his redemptive purposes uh, to these types and shadows uh, so as to communicate through these types and shadows the greater spiritual realities, really of eternal life and death and the gospel and the age to come uh, and, and so forth. So... It is that, but that as indicating and pointing to all the rest. Every Israelite that was born under the Mosaic Covenant uh, was already born as a violator of the Adamic Covenant. And so that's why it can't be a completely renewed uh, publication of the Covenant of Works because the Covenant of Works was already violated. And it couldn't simply be retracted without doing uh, violence to the justice of God. And the only one born in a uh, neutral relationship, so to speak, with God, uh, that is not under a violated covenant of of works in in the sense of uh, being personally, morally culpable, uh, was Christ. Mm -hmm. But sin, of course, was was imputed to him, so he was treated as a covenant breaker on, on behalf of us. Yeah, uh, I want to, I want you to talk a little bit about credo and uh, pedo distinctions. And, uh, one, the reason why is because if you read covenant theology, a phrase that you're going to find over and over and over in Presbyterian covenant theology, whether you're studying Old Palmer Robertson, whether you're reading, uh, Sacred Bond, one of my favorite little books on covenant theology, whether you're reading, uh, you know, Burkhoff or, or any of the classic stuff on covenant theology, you're going to find that the promise of the covenant was for the believers and their children. And so, um, what's the deal? Uh, Joseph, can you resolve the credo pedo controversy once and for all right here at Heritage Grace? I, I don't need to because it already has been. <laughs> uh, in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, 
And it's uh, the let's most. Turn, let's turn there. If you have your Bibles, turn there real quick. Jeremiah 31. I got a lot of feedback. It sounds like or no. You guys don't hear. As long as you don't hear. 31. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> what Presbyterians try to set up the art the distinction here is essentially, and it's not, it's not difficult, the distinction that Presbyterians and Baptists make is that the Presbyterians will argue that this promise of the new covenant, that this prophecy of Jeremiah is yet future, uh, that it has not been realized here and now. So even though we're in the new covenant, what Jeremiah promises here is a future reality. And... Why is that wrong? Well, they, 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 there are other interpretations as well from, from the Reformed and the Presbyterian world, but they, in, in my humble opinion, they all fall short. I, I greatly respect our Reformed, Pado Baptist brethren and all that, but their interpretations of this text are just simply inadequate. Uh, it's, it's not future because Hebrews 8 clearly quotes it and applies it to the present experience of the believers who are the recipients of that epistle. And so it's, it's, it's not a future thing. If, if we study the New Testament uh, definitive, apostolic, authoritative, infallible, inspired interpretation of this text in the 8th chapter of Hebrews, it's clear that it's not future. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is in the in the Reformed uh, Pado Baptist understanding of covenant theology, uh, the the majority position, the vast vast majority, is that the Mosaic covenant is unadministration of the covenant of grace. And so, what you get according to their system is you get one overarching covenant of grace uh, that embraces all of redemptive history. And this one covenant of grace is progressively unfolded through the different, distinct, particular, historic covenants that are made in time. So you get uh, the covenant of the Proto-Euangelion, according to them, uh, and then you get the Abrahamic covenant, and then the Mosaic, and then the Davidic. And each one of those is a uh, more fuller, revealed administration of the covenant of grace until the new covenant becomes its uh, fullest expression. And the, the reason that that's inadequate, according to this text, uh, is because the text is clearly saying that there is a very, very important area of discontinuity between the Mosaic covenant and the, and the new covenant. 
He says, I will make a new covenant with them in those days, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I led them out of Egypt. And so, if we take the text at face value, according to its clear assertion, there must be at least some form of important and significant discontinuity between the New Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, the text doesn't leave us guessing as to what that discontinuity is. It says, uh, My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with them, he says. In other words, uh, the Mosaic Covenant was breakable. It was able to be violated. They continued not in obedience to the terms of that covenant. And violating the covenant, uh, as, as I said before, they brought down upon themselves the curses and judgments of that covenant. Uh, they, they were placed into exile. Christ comes and he says, the kingdom of God shall be taken to you and given to a people bearing the fruits thereof. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the kingdom of God, that, that whole Mosaic covenant, it was broken. It was violated. Uh, and Israel, Israel did not keep it. The new covenant shall not be broken. It shall not be violated. It is a covenant that is unilaterally established by the sovereign promise of God. It is unilateral in its administration. Uh, it is it is monergistic in the sense that its ultimate fulfillment and the full fruition of its promises toward God God's elect depends uh, uh, rests upon the faithfulness of God alone. Uh, and the new covenant is, is not violated uh, by those who are uh, members of the covenant. Because he says, I will write my law on their minds and on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. So every single member of the new covenant has been born again by the Spirit of God, as the indwelling Spirit is savingly taught by God. Uh, John chapter 6 alludes to this, and I think it's verse 45, when it says they shall all be taught by God. And Christ equates that with coming savingly to Him, uh, which is one and the same as the exercise of justifying faith. So to exercise saving faith is to come to Christ, which is to be taught by God, which is to experience the uh, realization of the promise of Jeremiah 31 to be a member of the new covenant. Uh, and, and those who are thus taught by God, they don't need to be instructed saying, know the Lord, know the Lord, because they already know the Lord. In other words, in old covenant Israel, uh, what you had was uh, re- really the church was a saved remnant within this larger, unregenerate, theocratic nation. And so the true people of God was this remnant. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, the Lord said. But the vast majority were unregenerate. They were in the Mosaic Covenant, but they were not spiritual partakers of the covenant of grace. And what he's saying is the discontinuity will now be that he's not going to have this vast mass of a multitude of people that are in covenant relationship with him in that sense that he calls themselves their God that are unregenerate. But now for him to be their God and for us to be his people is to be in saving relationship with him being partakers 
of, of the fullness of the Spirit who applies to us all of the redemptive benefits of Christ. And so, there, there, there is no belonging to the new covenant and then uh, uh, becoming a, a covenant breaker and departing uh, from, from the covenant as such. That's, that's the difference. That's the discontinuity taught in, in the text. Yeah. And there's not a place for that in the Pedro Baptist system. Yeah. Yeah, amen. I couldn't have said it better myself. Only to say that when it says they shall not be, uh, they will not teach again, so to be taught by God, to have the law of God written on your heart is tantamount to regeneration. Yeah. And also, when it says to know the Lord, what does that mean? To know the Lord, uh, well, here, you know, to know the Lord, Yahweh, that, that phrase refers to uh, being in a saving covenantal relationship with God. Okay, and so that's the reason why the new covenant will be different. Everyone in the covenant will actually be in the covenant. That's a different. That's a different. So uh, the Pado, uh the Pado position has a very, very. Uh, uh, they have a very important weakness. What they're saying, by virtue of their argument, is that a correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Joseph. But what they're saying is that a person can be in the covenant of works and in the covenant of grace at the same time. It, it, it would seem, yeah. They don't like to put it that way. Yeah, they would never admit it. <laughs> they wouldn't want to admit that. But that's basically what it is. You know, an infant that is yeah. in the covenant of grace by virtue of their parents, because that infant is not, and even admit this, because that infant is not saved, is still simultaneously under the covenant of works. So that's a problem. You know, to me, it's like, how can you be under the? How can you be still be under Adam if you are in Christ? And it just makes no sense. So, uh, yes, sir. Louder. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's the fatal flaw of Pado Baptist covenant theology. Is they they have to in some way, shape, or form they have to uh, posit a breakable new covenant. They they do that in different ways. One of the common ways is uh, the uh, saying that the new covenant has an, an external and an internal uh, administration, uh, so that those who are truly born again belong to the internal administration. Uh, but those who are uh, engrafted into the covenant through infant baptism uh, only belong to the external administration. But it's it's an artificial uh, construct that really is not justified by the exegetical evidence at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. Um, boy, we're time went so fast. Yes, yes, ma'am. Sure, so 
So Gina's bringing up the point of household baptism, which you'll see it in the literature. They call it oiko-baptism, because oikos, house. So what about that, Joseph? I mean, in the book of Acts, pretty clearly, oiko-baptism is a reality. The whole house is being baptized, so weren't there infants in the house? Well, it doesn't say there's. It doesn't say that the Philippian jailer had infants that were baptized. It says his household. Right. For all we know, he had a 15-year-old kid that also was converted and believed and was baptized. Mm-hmm. I mean, or maybe he didn't. I mean, it, it just doesn't say. We can't build a whole theology of baptism out of pure silence. You know, the what one of the things that really uh, I I think is ironic is that uh, the Reformed tradition historically is so well known for its insistence on the regulative principle of worship. I mean, Kelvin, one of his uh, most famous works was a treatise that he called a tract, a treatise that was written on the necessity of reforming the church in which he articulates so well uh, the, the regulative principle which states uh, that we should not practice in terms of the elements of worship uh, themselves. We should not practice in the formal worship of the church anything that God has not commanded and therefore authorized. Non-commanded worship is unauthorized worship. And in approaching a holy God, that's not a neutral thing. Man is not free to just uh, worship God according to the concoctions and inventions of his own imagination. Scripture actually calls that idolatry. And so they argue this so well. And yet the ironic thing is, is when it comes to applying the regulative principle uh, to one of the two ordinances of the church, which is one of the most important elements of worship, baptism, they completely jettison, practically speaking, uh, the, the regulative principle because they practice an unauthorized form of worship. Scripture nowhere commands it. If you want to take them to their own terms on the regulative principle of worship and apply that to, to, to baptism, they fall into utter self-contradiction. The whole thing collapses. And so we need to be careful when we read texts like Acts 16 or Acts 2 uh, where it talks about household conversions not to read into those texts pedo-baptism which does not entail the necessary exercise of saving, conscious saving faith in Jesus Christ as the indispensable requisite, or prerequisite for baptism. I mean, the whole passage starts out with a Philippian jailer running to Paul and Silas and falling on his knees. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What does he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the emphasis is on saving faith. And in all of the passages which describe baptism in the book of the Acts and elsewhere in Scripture, including, including, you know, the classical text that the Pado Baptist loves to use in Colossians chapter 2, uh, uh, you know, the circumcised with the circumcision of, of, of Christ, you know, buried with him in baptism. And all of these texts, what we find close at hand in the context and in every single instance is faith. Saving faith. And so uh, we should not read into those texts some kind of pedo-baptism that, that, that doesn't include um, saving faith. Okay, so when people read the Old Testament and they talk about circumcision, and then the Bible says that circumcision is a type of baptism, uh, 
Uh, isn't circumcision a type of baptism? Where does it say that? Well, that's the implication in Colossians, right? So yeah, but it doesn't say that. <laughs> I, I'm trying to argue the other side. You know? <laughs> the, what, what is a new covenant anti-typical fulfillment and reality of the typological shadow of circumcision? Raise your is hand it baptism? You know. what, is, what is the anti-type of circumcision in the, in the, from the Old to New Testament? Yeah. So, so Romans 2. What would you base that on? Would you base that solely on the New Testament? Well, it's obvious you have some kind of passage in the Old Testament in mind. So go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, so yeah, so just to cut to the quick, um, it's not just that the New Testament tells us that circumcision is the antitype to circumcision. The Old Testament... Regeneration. Uh, yeah, regeneration is the antitype to circumcision in the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us that circumcision is a type of regeneration. Yeah, Moses sin. Moses preached it. Moses told the children times. of Israel to circumcise their hearts. What do you think he was talking about? He was talking about the need for being born again, yeah. which yeah. is synonymous with Ezekiel and what he talks about. In Ezekiel chapter 37, where he talks about being born again, which is exactly what Jesus is quoting in John chapter 3, uh, alluding back to Ezekiel. So yeah, the 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 uh, it works that way. I don't know. If I stole your thunder, but that, that that's important. You know what I mean? It's important because it's not like the New Testament helps us to give the Old Testament a different meaning. No, the Old Testament itself is giving us the same organic doctrine of what circumcision really means, and the New Testament just fits like a glove. Uh, that's why it goes together. So. Yeah, what's Im- implicit in the Old Testament is made explicit and fully revealed in the New. Mm-hmm. But just in that passage, it says, you know, in Him, this is Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, in Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so that's not baptism. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh is being born again. It's definitively dying to the dominion of sin. It's like and, putting off the old man. Yeah. Putting on a new man. And and where, where do you get that? This application of this this circumcision of what of which it's speaking without the putting off of the sins of the flesh, mm-hmm. uh, like you get in, in Reformed Pado baptism. Then it says, "Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead." And so, there again, it, it inseparably joins saving faith with the act of baptism. The New Testament knows nothing of baptism without faith in Christ. The, the personal, conscious exercise of saving faith on the part of the subject that is baptized. There is no such thing in the New Testament as the vicarious exercise of faith of the parents on behalf of their children. There's just none. Yeah, so we don't have time to talk about the doctrine of God. We wanted to talk about that. We don't have time to talk about biblical theology, my favorite subject. Uh, we don't have time to do anything other than pray and close and move on. It's terrible. You want to pray for us? Mm-hmm. Let's pray. Gracious and glorious God, full of majesty, honor, power, praise, dominion, 
riches. There is none like you. We can't even fathom or even scrape the surface of the greatness of your ineffable being. Oh God, all we can do is stutter and stammer over our words as we seek to communicate something of the vastness of your knowledge. We humble our hearts before you, Father. We declare that you are God, that Jesus Christ is Lord, crucified and raised, and uniting our hearts together, Father, we ask that you would seal everything that we've spoken here that is in accordance with your truth, Father. Seal that to our hearts, to our souls. Mm. Let it not just be theoretical knowledge fluttering about in our brains, but let it result in a true, practical, experiential, personal, vital, pietistic knowledge of the true God that truly transforms our hearts, that rivets our souls with the greatness of your majesty, that transforms us into the image of Christ and that leads us now into worship. We can praise your name now through through the reading of your word and through song and through the exposition of your word. Please, Father, pour forth your spirit upon us and allow us to worship you in spirit and truth and to edify one another in the fellowship of the cross. We pray and ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.